Wait, you, you, on a bouncy ball. <laughs> you sit on a bouncy ball to yes. make people to sleep? Yeah, and it works sometimes. I love this. I love that we're doing this. Um, <laughs> by the way, do you have a, a, like a libation? I know you can't drink because you're breastfeeding, but do you have like, oh, snap, me too. I have my Water. little bottle. Yes, keep it cold. In Sierra Leone, we have to get the insulated one that keeps it cold. Otherwise, it turns into tea every time we go outside. Wait a minute, you live in Sierra Leone? That's where we live now, girl. This is a temporary arrangement, all this. I thought you lived in Ethiopia. I did before. We moved this early in May. You we'll are such a... I'm, oh, I'm busy God. listening to you and how you're doing. That's why you don't know. That's good. I feel good about that because usually I talk too much. Nobody, I don't know what's going on with anybody else. So you lived in Ethiopia before, but now you live in Sierra Leone. Three years. Three years okay. in Ethiopia. Actually, when <laughs> you guys go back to Sierra Leone, you said you have a nice house there, right? Yes. Pull Can up. I come visit? Pull up. I'm I'm really gonna come visit Natalie. You know I'm yes. Gonna... You should definitely bring a friend with you too. Why? I work like a dog in Sierra Leone, so I probably won't be able to take up as much time. I will take oh, no. off time, but I want you to like see it with, you know, have an, a a playmate. I'm like a house cat. When I come visit people, I don't really need to be tended to that much. But you have to get out, like you. It's oh, no, nice. I have to get you out. But like the beach and it's you know spot. You know when you have people visit, sometimes they want you to be like a tour manager, like taking them on mm-hmm. activities every day, like you're yeah. at camp. That's I'm not one life. of those people. I want to have time to like write and like kiki and be on the internet with the waves crashing. Like I don't need all the. Oops, oops. You can have a whole wing of the house to yourself. Now you're just flexing. That's fine. Okay, so before Natalie talks about the mini mansion in Sierra Leone, my gosh. Hey, guys, if, you, if you've if you been hearing me talking to this voice, this is my good childhood friend, Natalie Gilmensa. You look beautiful, Natalie. Thank you. All and you, you. I know, because you have a busy life. And when you said you were going to make time for this, I was so happy. What I'm not happy about is the fact that we couldn't find a podcast studio in Boston. No, I wanted to be in the room with you, but well, we're gonna make can it we work. still look for one? Like, is it possible? Yeah. I, I mean, there exists. I, this is my first podcast in a while, so I don't know. I don't look for these things. But you're in the country till the end of June, right? Till the beginning of July. I'm currently looking mm-hmm. for flights the first week of July. Oh my god, so fast! I can feel ugh, these allergies. Do you know that the pollen is slowly killing people, children especially? In Boston? Oh, wow. What a great way. In Boston, specifically the Boston. Yes, I mean, maybe also Connecticut or something, but Boston for sure. My poor child has never had an allergy. He's been in Ethiopia since 18 months. Uh, I didn't even know allergies could get that bad. No, the allergies in, in California tried to kill me when I first moved here. Like I was on set because, you know, I came out here to do a talk show and I was first chair and I have lost count of how many times production had to stop rolling tape to bring me tea because my throat was closing up while I was talking and reading my lines. My son's yeah. eyes were like literally, they thought if you, they would have called child protective services thinking that he had two black eyes or so swollen and dark circles, but it was all allergies. I've yeah, never seen anything no. like that in my life. It's not natural. Um, I'm happy you're, you're on today because number one, we are going to circle back about finding a podcast studio in Boston. Let's do it. Let's because do you it. and I being in the same state, let alone actually the same it's continent, city. let alone the same state, we have not been on the same continent. Um, it, it doesn't happen often. And when it does, it doesn't happen for long. So the fact that you're here to, to give birth to your beautiful baby that you, Xavier, real talk, this is going to be the that. outing of that too, because I haven't been on social media. So I've decided 
that you know this will be the introduction of Xavier to the world because I'm going to oh, talk about him I love that <laughs> talking you, about motherhood yeah the, the the topic of motherhood is so uh I don't want to say nuanced I feel like I use that word a lot it is so multifaceted for me because when we were sitting in the living room that day where I, just, I was like no that needs to be on the podcast we spent two hours talking about what it's like to be a mother to not be a mother and to have a mother Mm-hmm. and that circle is, of life it's, literally, it's, it's literally we bring <laughs> life into the world it literally is a circle of life mother's yeah. day just passed not too long ago and my first question is because i made it a point not to talk to you before we did this okay no because whenever i'm about to have a friend come on the pod if we talk and kiki beforehand there's nothing left to talk about on the pod so the first thing is how was your mother day how did you spend your mother's day this year well that's a slow blank open your eyes for and <laughs> It was actually a really scary Mother's Day. We were in the ER for a good several hours. Um, You know, I thought about whether or not I was going to share this because, you know, as a mom, sometimes we do a lot of um, self-shaming because we can't do it all. We can't be everywhere and see everything. And, um, you know, I have a five-year-old and now I have a one-month-today-year-old. Happy birthday, Xavier, one-month-old. And um, thank you. And my five-year-old loves my one-month-old so much. So when he cries, he tries to rush to his aid. And so on Mother's Day, I was taking care of others, even though, you know, it's supposed to be the switch up, but we're like all fatigued, not sleeping with newborn. And um, finishing up washing dishes, Xavier was in the room, like a room over, and Thaddeus was between us. Mm-hmm. like doing his own thing and I could hear him I didn't have him on my eyesight but I could hear him which is if I'm able to pick up everything through that usually so he starts crying and so I like put stuff down and I go to see what's wrong and Thaddeus has him in his hands and <gasps> holding him and Thaddeus hasn't figured out like how to hold him yet like right. well as he's five um and it was you know really well intentioned and I like freaked out and I froze and I had told him before not to pick him up without an adult in the room and so I was kind of like Thaddeus you can't hold you can't hold him like that you know put him down and Thaddeus dropped him <gasps> and he fell on his head and he cried really hard like there's different cries for babies right there's right. the the pain cry there's the hunger cry there's the you know, and I free, I like first I froze and I freaked out. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I picked him up and I shushed him and he was okay, um, seemingly, but I still, you know, anything that hits the head, you yeah. have to go and check it out. And so I took my baby and he had an MR, what was it, MR, a CT scan. Mm-hmm. He's like nine pounds. You know, I mean, he's born seven thousand nine pounds. They put like gauze in between his head and the like stirrups to keep it in place. Oh my and god, the, the I was crying. T- oh, I I cried so hard when it happened. Um, and then I kind of took him upstairs and watched him sleep for thirty minutes before I called the doctor. I was just like making sure he's still breathing. And then I, um, yeah. He, it was the, the technician at the, the CT was like, this this could take two minutes or two hours. Because, mm. you know, you have to be still for a CT scan. Yeah. You can't communicate to an infant, never, never mind a newborn to be still. So, um, he yeah, he was fine. No bruises or, you know, issues internal or external in his head. 
um, because Thaddeus is so short and close to the ground, you know, he didn't fall that far, but to see that happen. And I was just like, that was like my worst nightmare yeah. on Mother's Day. So, and this happened on Mother's Day. So on Mother's I Day, so I'll remember it for the rest of my life <laughs> and his life, of course. Um, how did you make yeah. sure that Thaddeus didn't internalize shame? Because you mentioned how it, it's easy to feel shameful in that situation as an adult, let alone mm-hmm. a five-year-old. You know what I mean? You know, in that moment, I was thinking about Xavier being okay. And I was also thinking about Thaddeus being okay because he was experiencing his own internal shame. I didn't yell at him. I didn't, you know, I said, I was in, a, I stayed calm in a calm voice. And I was like, Thaddeus, you know, you, you have to wait for an adult to be in the room to pick him up. You understand why now? Mm-hmm. And he says, yes. And he was quiet and he looked really scared. He, he always looked like I'm going to, like, he's waiting for me to shame him or yell at him. And I don't, because I, mm-hmm. I know how that hurts for a really long time into adulthood. And so, you know, and then he kind of disappeared. And so I called him, I was hushing the baby and I called daddy. So I was like, come here, give me a hug. I was like, it's going to be okay. And I was like, I know you see mommy crying, but I'm going to be okay. And Xavier is going to be okay. You know, don't worry. Um, I know you're trying to help. And so I said, do you understand? He said, yes, mommy. And I said, okay. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, I don't even know if that was enough to calm his, uh, everything, but I intentionally, I was thinking, I don't want him to feel like it's his fault. This is my responsibility to have eyes on both of them. Right. And, um, it's, but it's not my fault. Either, not your fault I can't either. be everywhere. Right. Yeah. So, and that's one of the things we talk about a lot in the class. And I'm so happy that you and Kwame, you guys, Kwame is Natalie's beautiful husband. And they're both taking the class uh, this season. And it's so interesting because a lot of what you're saying, I can tell is informed by what didn't mm-hmm. happen for you. Because we've talked about this a lot about how we both have families that are from the Caribbean and Latin America. And they move differently. If that had mm-hmm. happened in, in 1992, and it was one of us with our parents, they would not have been so like focused on making sure that we weren't internalizing shame. Mm-hmm. They might've called us stupid and made us leave the room and then took the baby and be yelling, be alarmist, be acting in a way that would make it burn into our brains that we might've mm-hmm. done something to our brother. And so I always find it interesting how what our parents quote unquote didn't do right. Often informs. Yeah. We're always trying to be compassionate so that we don't do it to our yeah. kids. And you know, what's wild. I don't have any biological children, but whenever I talk to a mother, there's no gap in understanding because I had my first godson at nine months old and I've had to like raise all the kids in my family, which is why I moved out of, out of the state because they kept popping out babies and expecting me to raise them. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting how I, I, all the fatigue of motherhood, I know the uh, contraction pain of motherhood. I know in fact, unfortunately, because of the, uh, cramps that I have we talked about my endometriosis previously Mm -hmm. on the show the only part of motherhood that I've never experienced and that I can't feel empathy for is what it's like to actually carry a baby for nine months and then birth it right and that's a major part of it and I had a friend one time who was saying blue be careful when you say that because there's tons of mothers who also don't have that experience Mm -hmm. there are tons of mothers who have surrogates or they adopt or whatever so she was like why are you discounting the way that you can relate to motherhood just because the physical piece is missing. However, mm-hmm. and you know, not to share too much of your business. Now that you and I are about the same age, <laughs> look at your face. Just I'm younger. By a year. <laughs> Natalie's a, a, a year younger than me. Actually, I'm leaning into the year, girl. Leaning it's 10 months, in. but I'm being nice. It's Natalie. 
It's 10 Who months. Needs to calculate specifics. Oh, okay. You said you were younger. <laughs> so we're 10 Lincoln. months apart and watching somebody who was within a year of my age being pregnant and like going to that last sonogram with with you, by the way, thank you for inviting me to come to your sonogram. Thank you for you. coming. It felt so good to be in the room. I was like, oh, it's a sonogram. Look at the baby. Yeah, and you claim to have named my baby during the sonogram, and I don't recall. No, it wasn't during the sonogram. It was a month Did earlier. Oh, a month earlier. You okay. have pregnancy. Here's the thing about pregnancy. Brain. I don't know nothing about a month ago yesterday. So this is the thing about pregnancy brain that I <laughs> think it's so brain. interesting is because this I know, thank God. But the same time that you and I decided to do the podcast was the first time that you told me that you were looking for a strong name for your baby. You were sitting on the floor because I guess sitting on the couch was a little right. bit painful for you. So you slid to the floor and you were like, I still haven't figured out a name yet. And I said, what kind of name are you looking for? And I was sitting on the other couch across from you. And you were like, something as strong as Thaddeus. And I was like, well, I'm hearing Xavier. And then for the following month, I, I proceeded to call him Xavier, including during the sonogram. I'm going to go look at the videos that I took of us um, when we were walking out because I'm hoping I said it on the tape. And I kept on saying Xavier. And then one time I said it on the phone and I said, I don't want to be disrespectful by people calling you baby Xavier. What do you want me to call the baby? And you said, uh, call him baby um, Mensa three or something. And that's when we had, as a result of me asking you, what do I call your baby instead of Xavier? You said, call him baby Mensa three. And that's when you shared about your your different pregnancies and why the numbers were what, what they were. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be respectful and call a baby Mensa three. So when you sent me the text saying my baby's name is Xavier, I called you like, girl, thinking we were going to have a moment. And you were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. No idea. I still don't. But I appreciate you. I appreciate you for, um, you know, putting that into the atmosphere. I must have received it. And I then, believe I mean, that that is, I just that did not is, recall. But Thaddeus named him. So I don't even think well, I named the, mm-hmm. yeah, Thaddeus named the baby. So I didn't, I don't think I named the baby. I think the exact words I used was I'm hearing Xavier. So I think I was picking well, up. We gave Thaddeus two options and one of them were Xavier. So was like we, we narrowed down Harrison. I like Xavier. Yeah, I like, so I like, Xavier. like preferred Xavier to Harrison. I love didn't want to give him too many options. Cause when I asked him, I tried to have Thaddeus name him and you know, what did he come up I, with Coco Melon. Yeah, like he was, I don't know, like Chase or, you know, he would like Paw Patrol, like whoever he's into at the moment, he comes up with names of characters. And I said, mm, not quite, you know, we want to be as cool as that is. Um, now, so. here's the thing, too, like being a mother is such a big deal. Um, and um, last week's episode, we had Monique Slaughter from Love and Hip Hop talking about mm-hmm. her complicated relationship with her mother and to motherhood herself in the limelight as somebody who's in the Hollywood system. You worked in the Peace Corps. You're doing all this interesting government work and traveling all over the world. With all the epic things you do, is mother still the title that is the loudest for you? Like, what's the loudest title? Is it mother, wife, daughter, world savior, traveler, Gemini? Like, what is the identifier that you identify with the most? Yeah, I don't know if there's a most. I definitely have started pronouncing and introducing myself differently. Shout out to Girl Trek. I don't know if you uh, follow Girl Trek, but they had this daughter of series. Mm -hmm. And so I started introducing myself in like workspaces as the daughter of, you know, Amelia and Garfield Gill, mother of Thaddeus, you know, so because we spend so much time as Americans or as adults describing and defining ourselves by what we do and not who we are, who we are to others. And I thought I, I've become more intentional about that. Even my tag on Instagram is like mother, wife, daughter, um, sister, because those things are really important. 
Yeah. Um, I think right in this moment, because I'm a new mom again, and you can be a new mom more than once, because I forgot everything from five years ago. Let me tell you, um, I definitely mother is resonating loudest for me. Right. But, you know, I just I in my big age, I now try to define myself as something deeper than just what I do, because what I do is interesting and fun and and cool but it's it doesn't match being a mom um or going through uh, the beautiful journey that is marriage um you know and I my relationship with my mother has changed a lot it's improved a lot I've been become better with setting boundaries and you know how I struggle with setting boundaries we've had long car conversations about setting boundaries with our mothers Yeah. yeah and so I think you know once you get past the, the, the foro, things start to become clear or, you know, you just decide to care not to care about as much things yeah. <laughs> as you want. Because it's just not important. Yeah, exactly. How do I want to spend my energy? I know, I now know that I have a choice. I have a choice to be angry. I have a choice to be calm. I have a choice to engage or choose not to engage. You know, if somebody wants to come at me I have a choice to walk away like and I I even if you were to have a stronger balance or be triggered you also have a choice to get the resources so that you have the support to help you when you can't make those choices like Mm -hmm. you know what what I what I grapple with a lot of times when I hear conversations about identifiers and I wanted to have this conversation with you because I feel like because we've known each other since what you were 12 and I was 13 We've literally seen each other through first of all how did we even meet Natalie I was trying to think about that when I was preparing for the show because you didn't I, go to school with me and yet you were always around to the point. No, but I loved your school. school. I wished I went to your school. By the way, we want to shout out my school. I went to, I went to Boston, Boston Latin Academy. Academy. Amazing. Um, I liked my school too. I was an, a Metco kid, an integration kid. Um, wait, I think we met either at the summer doctor, like medical health program at Tufts Medical School. No, because I recommended you for that four years later. Um, or <laughs> your memory really is a little bit garbage friend because it, it's okay, so, so now I feel better about the Xavier thing or we met at the Y through Cindy no Our, I introduced you to Cindy you didn't introduce me to Cindy did you yes I introduced you to Cindy then I must have met you at the Y like the teen center it was, it was probably the Y Natalie you I did. met so many great people in my life at the Y big up to YMCA yeah programs when I was 13, it's when I went through my anorexic phase and I had started a pact of girls from my school who I was like the girl, you know, Regina from the Mean Girls. I went through a slight Mean Girl phase where I sat down my friend Veronica and my friend Yolanda and I said, if you eat Cheez-Its, I'm slapping them out of your hands because this summer we're going to get snatched. Veronica's like, oh. one hell of a hype mistress when it comes to working out too. She and it's right so, but I feel bad because I put the battery pack in her back like, yo, we're going to do this thing. And I accidentally made all of us have an eating disorder. I mean, we were snatched, but hungry all the time. And oh, so we lived at the YMCA. We lived there. Did. And you inspired me to work out. So I would work out with you guys. And I used to I work was... out two times a day, six days a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was extreme. I mean, that's healthy for somebody, but I think it depends on your body. It also you know, depends on the, on the reason too, right? Like I had an eating disorder. It wasn't like I was working out because I love my body. I was working out because I hated myself and I just wanted to shrink as much as possible. And it's so interesting how now that I'm older and thinking about working out, the reasonings could not be any more different. Mm-hmm. One of the things that always struck me was one of the girls that was in the group that we were hanging out with, Tawana. You remember Tawana? 
very much. Yeah, she passed away a couple years ago. I remember that whenever I would lose weight, she would stop being my friend. And so I used to associate being thin with not being likable to other girls. Like I was like, oh, whenever I, I'm thin, they don't like me. And then I get fat again. And I'll suddenly everybody wants to be my friend. So in my mind, it was almost like gaining the weight for like protection. Cause I wasn't a threat anymore. You didn't have to worry about your boyfriend or me getting attention. So I was talking to my friend, Brittany recently. She was like blue. And I think, cause I was telling her how I've been losing a little bit of weight because of my lifestyle changes. And she was like, blue. When I think of you and your weight, I don't think of heaviness. I think of protection. Hmm. and that struck me she was like she's like you don't feel like a heavy person you feel like the weight is was to protect you and I was like girl you have no idea how on point that is I honestly think especially in the high school years and even college young women or girls make friends with people that they feel like they look better or make them look good so that they can feel like they have I definitely had friends like that I've always been overweight most of my life I've been through every weight with my mom, me and my mom have been through every weight you guys were loss thing that you've ever heard of in your life. And um, yeah, I think some people would honestly befriend me so that because they knew they were slimmer than me or they had longer hair than me or they, you know, and so I made them look like the better choice to the boys or, or whatever. But I don't think I ever thought I was not beautiful. I definitely thought I was fat. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I didn't. But the, but I didn't always define that as not, I had really long, well, not really, but I had long, considerably long hair. It took me, it, that was why when I went to the continent for the first time, it was Ghana and cutting it off to be like two inches long. I don't know if you remember my teeny weeny Afro twice. I remember, I remember that phase. Yeah. That was like me really loving myself. I think for the mm-hmm. first time, because, because I was big, I felt like it was like my hair and my, my breasts. <laughs> Yes. We're like my two biggest actors. So I always have my still got my cleavage job. But not but not oh, I, I always say back in the nineties, the big girls were we were impeccable about our accessories, like and our and our nails and our hair and and like our like those little things that we could do because we in our titties, basically. This is before ass was the big deal. Back then it was And the world loved the, you know. <laughs> oh my God. So hold yeah. on, hold on. a quick second. Hold on for a quick yep, yep. second. Mm-hmm. Let's gonna make sure I fix the camera. All right. So you said something that kind of struck me just now about how you recognize in retrospect that a lot of people made friends with you because they thought that you were the safe fat girl that they could be friends with. And you know, what was so interesting. I had a friend, I won't name her, who it wasn't until somebody else pointed it out that I realized had become my friend for that reason. And I lost a hundred pounds and she started acting funny. She started acting real funny. I was like, what do you mean? I mean, we're, we're like so close. What's the issue? And then I realized my friend was like, she doesn't like you anymore because you're thin. Like you were, she's like, they were like, you're already, your face is already cuter than hers, which is this friend was being an asshole. Um, but she's the body. You're the face and she's the body. And I hadn't thought of it that way. Cause that's a fucked up way to think about your friends. Right. But when mm-hmm. I became thin, she was suddenly the butterhead because we were the same size. And this is not how I saw it. To, to me, she was beautiful. Like, this is what I'm hearing from other people. Mm-hmm. And I realized in that moment that, like, I didn't want to, like, threaten her in that way. So once again, this I gained 100 pounds back three times for friends. Because mm-hmm. I kept on feeling like, I, if I'm thin, I'm going to be too, like, people don't want to be my friend if I'm thin. And at this age, I realized that, like, I wish I could go back in time and tell that version of me. That's not how friendship works. If you had to think back, because I feel like high school, we we both went through so much because the 90s were brutal. For anybody who's watching this who was not a teenager in the 90s, well, it was a brutal time to be coming of age because the beauty standards 
were not just unrealistic like they are now. They were also problematic in a way that people didn't have the language to call out. Like now, if you're being fat phobic or being transphobic or being homophobic, whatever phobic, there's a whole like script of language to be called out by somebody who gives a damn. In the Mm -hmm. 90s, you were just getting clowned. And you just have to eat it and, and hope for the best. Yeah, the capping, like you're the Yo Mama, the era of the Yo Mama jokes. Yo and- Mama. Or even if it were, <laughs> if it were Afro-Latin, they'd be like, what, why, if, if you Panamanian or Cuban or Dominican, why are you so dark? The colorism was high back then in a way that the 90s was like the, the golden age of R&B music. I mean, and- I think it still is, honestly. It so. is, but now it's almost like people have to pretend because it's not socially accepted the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. Back then, you could be col- colorist to somebody's face and, and everybody would clap and laugh. Now you do it, you might get a Twitter thread about you and lose your job. Like, at least mm-hmm. there's a little bit of consequence. I is guess. there? What was your favorite and least favorite part about us growing up and coming of age in the 90s? Your favorite and least favorite. My favorite thing about the 90s, I think, one of them, there's probably more than one, is music. Absolutely. Like, Jodeci. Boys, like, like, there's no, music has never been greater than the 90s. I mean, maybe the 70s or the 60s, but not since then. Like, you know, and I still listen to 90s music Absolutely. and go to 90s music concerts because it makes me feel alive. And the people actually can sing. There's no autotone and you know, they don't lean into all the technology to make them sound better because they actually automatically do. Um, so music is one. Um, not being an internet age. I miss that. Like I talking to people, time. like memorizing phone numbers and call it like, boop, boop, boop. I rem- there's some numbers I remember. I remember numbers from high school and middle school and I don't remember any numbers now. Exactly. Like, the same. And that, and you see, I don't remember people's names or, you know, things that you told me happened that I don't know happened, you know, but I remember people's phone numbers today from high school because yeah. it was a thing and you called and you talked to your friends for hours and you, you left every, all the compare, like there wasn't the comparison. I mean, there were comparisons, but it wasn't like on Facebook scrolling, like, oh, my life's better than hers. My life, you know, and yeah. not better anything, but I know people do um yeah 90s was like a people to people time yeah and I really miss people to people um what I did not like about the 90s goodness um I thought I liked neon Is oh that, I love maybe neon that's, maybe, that, maybe that's 80s maybe that's 80s I remember First of all, it's the 80s I still love okay. neon. I, I love me a good chartreuse y'all look up chartreuse it's a beautiful color I look back at the neon choices I made in the 90s and 80s and I'm disappointed or sad what is the makeup choices I feel like the neon could have been cool because the 90s are back the neon is back now so that those clothes are in now but the makeup was wild we look ashy in the face back then green I never really wore makeup so I don't know yeah. well you think for the question my favorite part of the 90s was definitely R&B music and love Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is because I think the reason why we love 90s music so much is because 90s music was probably a golden era of like exalting love in the most beautiful way. It's like all the lessons we learned from the 60s, 70s and 80s about how to make beautiful music and all the begging our daddies were doing back then. And it came together perfectly in the 90s. And so the music in the 90s, to me, is also tied to the love in the 90s, right? Like Love Jones, mm-hmm. like where like oh, a man really, yeah, he would choose soundtracks. Again, love and I think love and music peaked a lot, particularly for the, the African-American community in the 90s. And I loved the way that people were being open. Like there's an emotional intelligence that the 90s had when it came to courtship, 
that I miss. I miss 90s courtship. Like I miss my, my aunt when her boyfriend would come pick her up. He would take her to ice cream on Sundays. Like, I, like the idea of getting dressed up on a Sunday and making your hair cute and making yourself smell like Shalimar or whatever else, Jonathan, whatever the cologne was back then and having a man come and pick you up, not tell you to catch an Uber to his house at 2 a.m. Like I miss the courtship of the night. I wouldn't go. Somebody asked me to do that. Mm-mm, that's not happening. Um, what don't I miss? I don't miss how uh, normalized dysfunction was in the 90s because we are still dysfunctional. But again, at least now we have the language to acknowledge that it's dysfunctional. There were things like I watched a lot of old 90s sitcoms that have come out on Netflix. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are aging well. Living Single is actually probably one of the best aging 90s sitcoms that I've ever seen because I've been binging them a lot lately. Mm-hmm. It's still aged beautifully. They had a plus size protagonist who wasn't white presenting. Her mm-hmm. friends were different shapes, sizes and heights different mm-hmm. bodies and everything else you saw people over the age of 30 actually falling in love like they acted like queen latifah was beautiful because she was and queen latifah shout out to her is she's the reason why i knew i was cute back then because i was like oh wait y'all think that's cute we, we wear the same size and my hair looks like oh maybe i'm cute and it felt like the boys who liked me she gave them permission to be able to tell the people that she, they liked me so she queen was latifah, such an important to women of size yes she was very does not get enough credit for being the original organic body positivity queen like mm-hmm. all people now who talk about body positivity and get all these brand deals all the folks that we love like lizzo and such and such ashley graham all these girls stand on the shoulders of dana okay and mm-hmm. so to and me she wasn't even trying she was just being herself and was fine yeah, as hell. It's, it's still fine. Like she's aging beautifully too, which makes she's me so beautiful. beautiful. She's still beautiful. So to me, courtship, Queen Latifah, and R and B music was my favorite part of the nineties. And my least favorite part was the fact that you could be colorist, sexist, racist, whatever else, and there would be a laugh track pretending like it was okay. Mm-hmm. Like that was my least favorite part. Like it was problematic, but we sometimes glorify it because the problems weren't being put on Wi Fi. Because we didn't have Wi-Fi yet. How are you dealing with or feeling about the act of aging, friend? Because mm-hmm. I still feel like, like, honestly, the way I'm dressed today is probably the way that I was dressed when we first met. Like, I'm wearing, I don't think, I think I have a Peter Pan thing happening that I didn't intend. Mm-hmm. Although they do say people with Gemini in their chart a lot. I um, tend to age a little bit slower because it's a youthful sign. But how are you? I like that. You like that part? Mm-hmm. I have a lot of Gemini on my chart. I like that. How do you feel about aging? Do you feel like you're excited about aging? Are you annoyed about it? Are you making tweaks? Because my view on aging um, has evolved a bit because I've learned to be a little bit more honest because I think I was in denial up until a couple of months ago about how I feel. Mm-hmm. And now my answer now is probably different than it would have been a year ago. Yeah, I feel I feel good about aging. You know, I feel like I am where I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I feel like 20s and 30s are just kind of looking for something, searching. And I'm still searching. I still like to reinvent myself every now and then. Um, but in this moment, I feel like, you know, whatever will be what it will be. I think the first time I felt aging was 38. And I thought the things I was feeling at 38 didn't happen until you're in your 50s like the achiness arthritis I had like arthritis in my hand and then I the biggest thing was like when I had to take I I wear glasses y'all I'm trying to be cute today when I had to take my glasses off I was like to read the 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 fine print (laughs) in the notebook when you when you're reading with your glasses you look just like your mom like you make the exact same facial expression she makes it's so funny I need the like the buy I don't know what I need I haven't gotten it yet I'm still in denial about that yeah I don't know I hope it's not bifocals but I need the two type of 
tier thing because I have to like do this. And that yes, started man. at 38, 39. And I was like, I'm not even 40 yet. What is this? The gray hair has been coming in for a while. Um, I have what people call a baby face, although yeah. I feel grown. People think I have a baby face. And because I work in leadership roles or I was going after management roles, I let my gray hair come in. I made that choice for my career. I probably would have been more vain and died. And maybe I could die now because I kind of met a lot of the goals I was reaching for. I still have more goals to go for, but I, I like them now. I think they give a certain level of sophistication. Like I've been here a little bit and nah, I've been here. Beautiful. <laughs> gray is beautiful. It's a part yeah. of it's natural and it's beautiful. And I've seen, especially with the, with the natural hair movement and the more the greater acceptance of having natural hair, seeing like women with big bushy gray afros or gray streaks or I think that's beautiful and hottie, you know? And so I I want to lean into this age. I'm not mad at aging. It, it's happening. I have so much more life to live. Um, I had this big goal when I was turning 40 um, and I'm now 41, going to be 42. In like what? A few days. A few days actually. Yeah. I mean, yeah, a a couple of weeks. And so um, I had this goal of seeing the world and like doing, getting to 40 countries by 40. Mm -hmm. So I met that goal with Seychelles in May of 2020, I guess it was 20, was it 2020? That was pandemic. 2021. was my 40th country and so now it's like can I keep up with my age you know I feel like I'm living I think the the worst part about aging is when you stop living yeah and you feel like because of an age that you've arrived at that you can't do something I still feel like I can do most things um if I put my mind to it it's just making the choice it's crazy you mentioned that because I realized um a couple of days ago because you know I just got back from Boston like six hours ago like I haven't it's like the longest nap after we finish this episode friend Mm -hmm. and I told my mom's doctor during her visit I was like she is actually healthy she's depressed a lot of her ailments are because she's not taking care of herself because she's depressed about the fact that she worked for 40 years and her bones and her joints won't let her be as mobile so -hmm. she'd be like why is me and Nancy Pelosi the same age and she can still wear heels and I can't like my mother is angry that her age is finally actually stunting her free agency. So I do think there's a thing where aging feels beautiful and then you start to lose your free agency and then it doesn't feel beautiful anymore. Right. Like, and I think that's why my view on aging has kind of shifted because I realized some of it was a little ableist. Like it's easy for me to feel good about aging when like you, I'm walking around with a baby face and I'm frolicking with my friends in LA with my little backpack, backpack, you know, act like a big little kid and traveling the world and do all these things that I want to do. It's easy to feel good about aging when you can still be feel juicy and running around the streets. But what happens if you get sick? What happens if you have to sit still? What happens if you need aid? Like my mom just started using her, um, her roller, but like she fought for six months not to use it because to her old ladies use that stuff. Like why? She's like, why do I need that? My mind is so sharp. And so Mm -hmm. I'm now realizing that like, yeah, aging feels good now because I haven't lost anything yet. I mean, Um, your mind, the challenge is your mind doesn't always match up with your body. Yeah, her mind is 40, but her body is 76. Depending on what you, you know, put, put the work in when you were growing. And I, I feel like I'm not really putting the work in that I should be putting in to do be better when like when se- 70 is very different from 40s. Yeah. In your 70s, that's when things like really hip replacements, knee replacements. Um, and I don't know, I, I feel like I need to live, work really hard in being present and living in this moment 
you know, whatever comes at me, if I am blessed enough to live into my 70s and 80s, I will meet it with the best attitude I know. And I think if I work on my mindset and my attitude, I'll be okay. I'll adjust. I'll find things to do that I can do that I enjoy doing. I think it's just being active, like trying to talk. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't think the 40s. yeah. I don't know if the 40s and 70s are, se- are separate. I think that what you do in the 40s dictates how your 70s look. Exactly. And I think that I think that's why I'm like, oh, I know that I'm my mother's child. And even the things I don't like about her, um, I probably do as well. So if it led her, if me acting like this is going to lead to that, I got to make some tweaks. Like, I'm sure. Have you looked at your parents at any time and be like, oh, yeah, reminded to self. Let me adjust this, this and this habit because I'm seeing visually with my parents. This is what it leads to if I don't nip it in the bud. Has that happened to you? Because it's been happening to me a lot lately. A little bit. The more, the bigger thing for me, yeah, the bigger thing for me is seeing as much as I try not to follow my parents, how they show up in me and what I do. That's been happening a lot, much more. And especially with my mothering, back to motherhood, like I'm trying to intentionally not put things into my children that I feel have impacted me in a challenging way in adulthood, mm-hmm. but I, it creeps in because it's, it was so normalized for me growing up. Um, yeah, I definitely with mindset and like, um, mental health, that is kind of what I'm trying to do now that I feel like my parents are not willing to, I mean, Caribbean, we don't do therapy. We don't do, you know, call, go, go, go to Jesus. You go know. to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it's like go, you know, pray on it. So you know, have somebody pray over me, lay hands on you. Um, you know, don't don't talk about it. My dad is like, who? Why don't we go pay somebody to talk talk about what? What they gonna tell me? I don't already know. You know, Wait, you you mentioned therapy to him, and that was his reaction. Yeah, even doctors now, he's like, I hate going to the doctor. When am I going to the doctor? They don't even do me do anything. Sometimes they don't touch me. They just ask me stupid questions. <gasps> My mom just said that yesterday, and I was like. Are you serious? They they catch like they have to ask questions to make sure you don't have the symptoms that predict other problems in the future. He's like, whatever. (laughs) That is so infuriating to me because this whole week, and this is why I love that you're on this episode because you understand what it's like to be living your life in your forties and feeling like you're finally hitting your stride and you your confidence is at an all time high and you know who you are. And at the same time, your parents are are yelling bullshit at every good thing that you're trying to introduce into their lives. Yeah. And you're like, I'm trying to keep you alive and happy. Like, why are you fighting me on this? Absolutely. And they, I mean, I really hope, like my dad always says, whatever, whenever God's ready to take me from this earth, you know, I lived a long life. I'm in my, I'm 80 and I made it, I made it this far. I made it this long. I've been here. God spare my life. That's fine. I don't need no doctor to. So he's already like written his future. Um, Just trying to keep him happy. I think being happy. And yep. breathing through things and choosing not to engage or be angry or like my parents in road rage. They still both drive. Wait, and the, and the how old is your mother? My mother is 76. So in her 70s and 80s, they're still having road rage? But not road rage, like external road rage. It's become internal because they know now they're watching the news. Everybody gets shot, you know, <laughs> boo, boo, boo. Every time somebody winks at you wrong. Right. Um, and we shouldn't be laughing at that. It's, it's no, no, it's, I'm laughing at your impersonation that your parents are watching the news and saying, let me shut the hell up. Like that's yes, but in the car, like when I'm driving, like, what the f-? you know, these stupid, blah, blah, blah. you know, he, they're in their, their blood, I can see their blood pressure rising. You know, I can see Man. their tension. 
that does things to your body. Your oh, body's central nervous system is not meant to be angry or tensed up that often throughout the day. And they're always in their car. And I'm just like, you can choose to just recognize you can't change the, the things about the people, the way they drive around you, but you can change your response to them. You know, this is me saying, this is what I'm not going to do when I'm 70 something. I'm not going to be yelling from my car and putting up my blood pressure for no good reason. Um, but blood pressure is such an interesting thing in the black community in particular, because I feel like the reason why so we bad. have such a high rate of blood pressures because we have all this trauma in our DNA, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, there's this survival instinct, this fear in our bodies that creates a space. It's a perfect breeding out for blood pressure because between the food deserts where it's hard to get high quality food without breaking the bank, the disparity in how much we get paid, right? So we're, we're eating this cheap food because we're broke because of the disparities in how much we're getting paid. We have all this trauma that's unresolved. We don't think therapy makes any sense. It's just my talking in your face. And so, yeah, that's a perfect breeding out for high blood pressure. My mother was in the car recently with an Uber driver, didn't say anything. And he had an incident where he could have had road rage and chose not to. And he was like, oh, wow, that was really irresponsible of them. Like he was being really cool. And out of nowhere in the back, I hear my mother say, fucking asshole. And I was like, mom, you have not I love t- how your mom drops swears and F-bombs. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's her face. She's just be at peace. And all of a sudden, fucking you know, asshole. The lip turns up. <laughs> You fuck you in like I I caught her on the phone the other day and she's like fuck you in the ass and I was like mommy who are you talking to it was the telemarketers she cusses them out she whispers swears at them when the t- I said mom yeah. you can't you, you can't just you can't do that she's like why I was like because it's actually just not good right so I think one of the things we're learning all of us is to be better than a more evolved version of our parents and hopefully daddies and Xavier will be more evolved versions of you and Kwame. Uh, now, so. here's the thing, though, that's interesting. Earlier, you said that you identify as a mother, as a daughter, as a wife, and all those things are beautiful. My question, though, is what's the balance of not only be identified to how you relate to others? Like, what's the that balancing act of I have these beautiful relationships that I want to honor, and also I am my own person, regardless of those relationships? Because I feel like there's this teetering that I've been doing lately between being individualist, no, being for the community and helping my family, but also respecting me myself as an individual. And it's tricky, friend. Have you even, have you figured that out? Do you have any tips for us? How to, absolutely like, not. I haven't figured it out. I've been thinking about it because I know to be healthy and whole and happy, I need to figure out that balance. But yeah. in this moment with a newborn, yeah, I mean, that, that there's be- nothing for me. There is no, you know, one of the things with with Thaddeus I was able to nurse he latched and for those who don't know latching is when the baby can attach to your breast and, and breastfeed that doesn't come naturally to women all the time and I don't I don't think people know that my mom and, said it didn't come naturally to her at all and I rejected her and my mom too my mom said it hurt too much so she gave up you know and I was like okay it's not turned out okay you know but it's a very amazing bonding experience with your child and it's convenient because you walk around with these tools of feeding it and Xavier is not latching yet. And I'm saying yet because I'm still mm-hmm. trying. And I'm, you know, particularly for the plane ride to Africa, I need him to latch. And that means I'm very focused on breast milk and making sure since I have the ability to make breast milk, with all, which also milk, all women cannot do, um, mm-hmm. that I give it to him. So I'm feeding him. And sometimes he'll take the from a bottle. I pump the milk for 30 minutes every three hours. Ooh, on your on your titties that sounds exhausting yes. friend. it's like it's like i was thinking about cows the other day i was like you know breast pumps are probably the same as the cow milk thing that they yeah, do you know? 
um, the suction. Anyway, I'm pumping the milk for 30 minutes and then I am feeding him and he takes a long time. He grazes, he, he rolls, his, you know, infants sleep for like 20 hours a day. He closes his eyes, he opens his eyes, takes an hour to feed him. And he's supposed to eat every three hours starting, oops, sorry, starting on the beginning of the hour. So if he eats at 12 p.m., one, two, three, he has to eat again at 3 p.m. So if I pump for 30 minutes, then I feed him for an hour. I only have 45 minutes to an hour to recover before I have to start all over. Oh, hell no. Nah. Nah. So that's been my life. That's why I, I don't have anything for my... It'd be one like, thing if you were 20, but once you hit 40, that just sounds extra exhausting, friend. And he's sleep. He's not, he's not sleeping through the night. So I'm up all night and then I'm expected to... Well, I'm not expected. I put that expectation on myself, but I expect myself to be able to operate somewhat during the day, but yeah. then I have to look for pockets of sleep. So it has to be 45 to an hour pockets because then I have to prepare for the next feed cycle. It's a lot. That sounds like hell. I'm not even going to hold you. Nothing but about that sounds latch, like- I could take out one of those steps. Um, and no, it's not always like that. It's only in the beginning. Later they merge and then they eat, you know, five times a day and four times until they get to three times a day. But right about now, I, I can't. But you asked me living the balance, the balance. So one thing I've been thinking about is doing an, you know, I like to travel, doing an annual trip. It's either a girl's trip or a solo trip by myself. I love that. Without kids. Because my 40th birthday trip, I mean, my 40th birthday, 40th country trip, it was a girl's trip, but it was three moms and none of us had our kids. And the first day I woke up in the morning and I was like, <laughs> you know, nobody's Girl. looking for me. Nobody's looking for me. I'm not responsible for anybody but myself. And then I went back to sleep. She was like, I can rest. I don't have to worry. And it felt so good and liberating. It's like, I need to do this every year. And of course, yeah. I haven't done it again since, you know. Um, so I'd like to do something like that or, you know, some eat, pray, love. I love Indonesia. I've been to Indonesia, Bali. I love, I love to go Bali. back to Bali by myself and just do like a spa meditation, breathing, like all Well, if you it. go to Bali, let me know. I'll, we'll do it alone together then because I went, to, I went to Bali with the wrong person. It was a beautiful trip with the wrong person. And so it's been on my bucket list to redo Bali without that human being in my face. So Bali is actually high <laughs> on my list of places that I need to do a do-over. Um, I'm going to London next week. Nice. So I'm excited for about that. Yeah, I'm going to London. For, well, here's the thing. I'm, I was initially going to London for the Beyonce concert, which, by the way, accidentally speaking into existence a year before it happened, because I knew somebody associated with her who had told me last summer that the trip that she was going to kick off in Europe. So last summer I was like, hey, the best place to see Beyonce would be in London with the Black Brits because they already love dance music. And so that feels like the best place internationally to go see it. And then unintentionally ended up accidentally getting tickets to London. And I now think I might stay longer, actually. You sure. London is so much fun. There's lots I've been to London before and I loved it, but I, I was there with other people. I think I want to do London solo. Like I want to do a solo trip. One of my homegirls, shout out to Brit, she was supposed to come with me, but it was just too much last minute. And now I'm like, and she talked me into it. She was like, Blue, do not cancel this trip. You have been working for your family for so long. You're constantly putting other people first. Take a trip. And I was like, well, if I'm going to take a trip and it's for me, I want it to be more than a couple of days. So I actually think I might stay in London for like a week or two. Mm-hmm. Just run away from home for a little bit and, and wander off. Do you ever miss the complete autonomy of not having to be a wife and mother? Because I feel like those things are exalted for a reason. 
but they also come with a lot of baggage and a lot of expectation, especially on the female partner or the female presenting partner. Do you ever just sometimes wish you could have like a week of just being a city girl and just being selfish? I asked my husband the other day, do you ever feel like running away? Oh shit. You asked him that? First of all, that's a trap, Natalie. Stop asking that man questions like that that you know going to get him in trouble. Fellas, uh, I'm going to defend you here. Any wife asking her husband that after just having a newborn is setting him up. What is this poor man? I like? was asking him in order for him to say yes to allow me to feel like I could say it. Because no, that's, that's not fair. I, no way I know that's not failing. It's manipulative <laughs> and all those things. You know, emotional intelligence, bad. So, but I really, you know, if I could just get up and not for a long, like not forever, just, you know, disappear on people and mm-hmm. just, you know, do me, go to, go for, you know, a massage or do a day. But my, I mean, my, my, my breasts would engorge with milk. I can't even leave for the, the day. You, you're, I'm, I'm like literally logically, physically attached to my child. Yeah. Actually, that's not true. I could leave with my pump and then just make milk whenever I felt like I needed to and not be physically with my child. But You'd be so guilt-ridden, it wouldn't even be fun for you. But wait, don't pause. The audience is going to be like, she didn't answer the question. How did he answer? How did he answer when you asked him that? Because you said this black man up. Yes. Oh, he he said yes to your face. Why wouldn't? I mean, we we try to be honest with each other. And he's not always able to be honest with me because he's always worried about how I'm going to feel. But I think he knew I was asking because that's how I was feeling. Yeah. You know, because I was, maybe I asked it, like, don't you want to run a race? (laughs) I might have said it that way, which would have meant that I was leading to my talking about myself. Um, But yeah, not because I don't love my children or my life, but I do just need a break. And sometimes there is no space. Sometimes I'm wondering about when I'll have time to go to the bathroom. Yeah. It's just, (laughs) it's just a lot. But, you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I think. You know, and I didn't talk too much about the pregnancy. I don't know if you want to use the pregnancy stuff, but being able to have a baby is like a gift. Yeah. And and not everybody has a chance or chooses or wants to do it, which is fine. But it's something I wanted to do. Um, my first childbirth experience wasn't what I planned. You know, I had a C-section. And so this time I really wanted to try to do it the way you watch it in the movies, which is not exactly that way. Um, called VBAC, vaginal birth after C-section. And to be able to pull it off in my 40s yeah. as a woman that's over, considered overweight, mm-hmm. right? With doctors telling you at every every stage and every visit, you should just induce and have a C-section. It would be easier. There's all these different ways you could die. You know, you could be hypertensive. You could. There's all these fair kind of things which are true the medical racism that you experienced during your birth story and that's a whole mm-hmm. episode in itself made me want to fight everybody at that hospital mm-hmm. and the way that black women and the way that fat black women in particular because how they think of us in, the, in their heads when we are trying to have a baby and we have the nerve to do it over the age of 35 the lack of compassion that comes ironically from the very people who need to be there for us during our most vulnerable moments is infuriating. Like as your friend, I actually cried after we after we talked about it because I was like, the idea of you being treated like that. Sorry, I'm not gonna cry. I've been so emotional lately. But the idea wow. of you being treated like that during your most vulnerable moment, as somebody who loves you, it made me so angry. I just want all of your listeners to know something I didn't know before. You know, sometimes you're brought up to feel like you have to listen to everything the doctors and the nurses tell you, but you have agency, you have power, you have choice. 
and you can choose not to. I changed my OB halfway through my pregnancy because I didn't feel safe with that person. I didn't feel like this, the person was listening to me. Yeah. Um, and I and I found I created and I built a black girl magic team. I had a black woman doula, a black oh, and I live in Boston. It's hard to find black doc, black people in period or black doctors, especially black OBs. Um, and you know, she was amazing and she heard me and she saw me for who, and she had been through similar experiences that I was going through. Um, you know, I happened to have black nurses on my team from the, the Ellen, the labor and delivery. And so I, t- I was so geeked. I took a picture. I was like, we might never see this again. Oh yeah. The picture of the three, the four of them at the thing. All of them, all of them. I was like my birth team. I felt so, so that when that doctor came at me, and started telling me how I needed to have a C-section at 10 centimeters dilated. I was like, no, I think I'm pushing at this point. You know, I had done, and between that and your candle, because I had done a lot of work with the indigenous candle. Girl, I've made a manifesting a good childbirth process. And by the way, thank you for trusting me for doing spiritual work for you, because pregnancy is such a tender time. Mm-hmm. I had that candle on my on the altar with my aunt's energy for like a week after I made it because I just wanted some extra juju on it. So mm-hmm. I'm 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 honored that you trusted me in that way, and I'm also just kind of really proud of you because I remember us when we were little kids and how badly you wanted the life that you're currently living, how badly you wanted to travel and to to meet a good person and to have kids, and literally everything on your list. How does um, that feel? It feels amazing, and it feels like what else what else is next because I keep creating and I'm not I'm I'm not like sweating myself or anything or trying to talk big it's it's more so I set goals I work really hard to them and then I reach them and I'm like oh my goodness where's the rest of my list I need to make a new list so now I'm in this place of what next what do I want to be in for the rest of my 40s into my 50s what do I want to do for my family these days I've been thinking about like wealth how do I build wealth what's my what's I'm not going to be a star at this point at least I don't think so no why not maybe I will I mean I haven't I, I haven't been looking for that um I'm more thinking about how I can get money to make money for me and yeah. not only live in this kind of work for salary or work for hourly um lifestyle and so that's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, but being able to reach goals feels amazing. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. I doubt myself a lot. Um, you know, even, even though I'm in a position where I have to be confident and, you know, guide others, I still have imposter syndrome. I still have moments. You have imposter syndrome, really? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I, I, I am in leadership in a country and in a position that's usually white men. Mm-hmm. And I have, you know, I happen to have a white man that reports to me. He's wonderful. And when I go into rooms with him, with, you know, ministry leaders of countries or country leadership, they always look to him like he's the boss. <gasps> and it's me. But I, but I expect that because that's all they know. I mean, you know, Africa and colonization and, you know, white men lead stuff. They don't expect a black woman, black women raise kids, cook, you know. So you're doing all this fancy international affairs stuff and you're the big boss, the big bitch in the room. And you walk in with a subordinate who happens to be a white man and they just optically assume that he's your superior. 
all often. And I'm essentially using that language because that's how they're thinking about it. It's exactly how they're thinking about it. Yeah, often. And what's great about him is he knows that. And Mm. I don't know if it's great. It's almost sometimes he overcompensates like, this is my boss. She runs the agent, you know. He starts genuflecting like in courtesy, like you're the queen of England. And I'm like, you don't have to do that. Why not? Because I think, and this is one of those things I've decided not to be mad about. Uh And I've decided to like find humor in it. And so I think I this humor him cursing and hopping on one leg like coming to America. I, I, I let the charade go on because sometimes people will talk to you differently when they don't think you're the boss. That's from true. When they do. So you can learn a lot about people and who they really are. And so when you tell them who you are, it's a surprise. They're like, oh crap, what have I just, <laughs> what have I shared with this person that I thought was an underling? Um, so yeah, I just, I feel good though. I feel, I feel good. At the same time, I'm looking for more. I'm searching for more. I'm trying to figure out what's next. There's a thing that I call divine dissatisfaction where you are grateful for everything that you have, but understand that you're living at a nine and there's always room for improvement. I don't believe in being a 10. Like if I'm writing something from from one to 10, it's really one to nine. Because my thing is once I hit a 10, it's time to die, right? Like ain't nothing left to do. You stop trying. There's nothing to do. And, And I think also too, we were talking earlier about how we are leaving these brave lives and our parents could not probably not even conceptualize back in their day. And we've kind of become our, our mother's keepers. Like, I feel like when you talked about how your relationship with your mother improved, I think there's a part of our parents, our parents, our mothers in particular, who probably admired the courage that we had, that they didn't. Perhaps. Cause when, when I, when I was over your house and um, your mom was there, there was this beautiful look on her face of just like pride. Like she, yeah. And I I know you didn't, you didn't catch it because, you know, you had this newborn looking at you like you were a milk machine and a five-year-old doing (laughs) and your poor husband's like, I haven't slept in three weeks. This is my life. Like it was a lot happening. (laughs) (laughs) All of that is so true. I I love this. Yes, please. Uh, We need as many aunties as we can get. I don't know if my mother's ever articulated it to me in that way, but I do feel like my parents are proud of me. Absolutely. Um, and I'm grateful for that because my, I, I always, I want more for myself. I feel like I should have figured out a way to be rich right now and paid off their mortgage or like got that, you know, got, but that's not, I know that's not my job and they have actually told me that's not my job, but I feel like that is a definite, one of the definitions I have for myself for me too. to be able to take care of my parents so they don't have to worry. Mm-hmm. But being that I turned out okay and I, you know, I did the things I was supposed to do, stayed in school, you know, waited after marriage. I mean, it's, there's so much judgment with all these statements, but these are the things that our parents value and say, this is how things should be done. Yeah. I, I think I would have been fine if I had a baby in my twenties and it might have even been easier to have somebody that can wipe their own behind um, while I'm doing all this work on the other side, but everything happens for a reason, right? I agree. So, there's no should right no buts or should there's no buts or should the right time this is the divine order and my parents I know my parents are proud of me even though they might never I've never heard them say it um I saw I'm I'm telling you I I saw it it all over her face actually they have said it my dad says it yeah they both have said it before I lie you know what's so funny when I'm around my friends who have like husbands and kids um there's a pang of shoulda woulda coulda that I expected that I don't feel I'm I'm so it's so interesting how you can love and appreciate something and recognize what everybody has their own different path 
I really want someone to dream about me if I because you know I've been engaged. I didn't tell y'all when it happened because I was being secretive. When yeah, when when Antonio went away to Atlanta and he was my everything, like we spent 24-7 together. I started dating somebody in Philly and got engaged. And he was Muslim and he went to temple and you know, he was a nice guy and he proposed to me. And I just said kind of said yes, because I figured like, okay, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And one day he was just talking about like how he wanted to have babies immediately and by the time. And I started imagining like by the time I'm 30, if this all happens, I'll be married with like two or three kids by 30. And I've never left my mother's home. I've never experienced life. I've never even traveled out of the country at that point. I'd never even left the country. And so there was all this life that I had to live. And so there's these two bizarre versions of me, like the me, well, actually there's three. Me, if I had gotten married and I would be divorced by now, I know for a fact that anybody I picked at 21, I would have divorced by now. Or if I had gone the route of doing it in my thirties and early forties. And then there's this version of me who's like, I've lived a lot of life. And now anything that I do, I'm making the choice from a fully informed, healed place. And I do think that you and I represent two alternative routes that a lot of women aren't told. We're not told that you can wait till your thirties or even your forties, right? Like you waited to your thirties. I clearly waited till my forties and like, we're good. And so good. I think it's better so good. for me we're that better way. Than for good. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think when, cause as you were talking, I was like, yeah, but I waited till my late thirties or mid thirties yeah. to get married. And I, you know, I've, put a lot of value on life and culture experience and travel and world. I had already probably hit up 20 countries before I met my husband. And so yeah. I felt like I've seen the world, you know, I can settle down kind of. Because you waited later. Like- you, you you waited much later than the norm. And that that's, there's a free agency in that that a lot of them don't see as an option. But one of my criteria was that, you know, you, I want to keep travel. I want to keep seeing the world. I want to keep having these experiences. So if mm-hmm. you're going to be down with me, that you're going to have to be on this plane with me, you know? So he, he knew what he was signing up for. Um, and I mean, I am happy. I am good. And it's still work and it's hard. And there's moments, many moments of unhappiness and frustration and, you know, being married, married is, is work. And being married um, in 2023 friend child, there's so much like external pressures on you. Um, it's 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 a lot it's a lot of work and you know I just think I'm happy that I am in a committed relationship and I don't have to live this life on my own because mm-hmm. as you know I'm still working on figuring out how to be on my own which I should do in my marriage as well right you should have moments when you're together with your spouse and moments when you're on your own and and taking care of yourself and exploring and self-care and um as much as I, I'm working on that, I'm still happy to have <laughs> a person. And you have um, a good person too. Kwame is just sweetheart. Yeah, yeah he's, he's wonderful. Um, so I think it's, but it's constant work. We have to continue to work together, grow together, um, learn together in order to complete the journey. If, you, if you're this tired with a partner who you know loves you, even on his bad days and, you know, wants to be with you. Can you imagine the people who are with partners who they can't say that about? I have never. I can't even imagine being with a, with a, with a vagabond, you know, a philanderer and have to do life. I've been thinking a lot about lately, not even being with a bad partner, but being single. And Hmm. as a mother, I have so many friends that have raised beautiful, capable, amazing children as single mothers. So, and I big up superheroes. 
yeah, it is It is a superhero to be a mother, period. To yeah. be a mother and do most of it on your own. I mean, of course you have a a family unit, a village is helping you, but it's different. And I don't, I, I can't, I just big them up and, and bow down and, and praise them every day, knowing that they were able to, to do all that they did, um, you know, on, on their own for the most part. Um, so I can imagine that being with a bad person. I don't think I can. I think I would walk. Away. Well, I'd like to say I would walk away, but now sitting here with two kids, I don't know. It takes a lot of thought to walk away when you've invested. If it's when it's more than just you, if yeah. it's just me, I, I could walk. I think I could walk away. Part of me says I could walk away, but then part of me is like, well, maybe I know you and as your friend, I think you would stay a little alive. No, I don't think you're lying. I think you would stay a beat, but you would eventually walk away. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Your survival instinct is very strong. And you tend to, even when you hem and haw, do what's going to make you happy. I really, I really want, you know, you never know what's going to happen in marriage. People change and evolve. I really want my marriage to work. Yeah. I don't know what it's going to be like in 10 years when we we're going, maybe going through different things. We're trying to put it. I'm, I'm really happy to know that we're both committed and to working on it. Continuously. That's major. Friends. Work. And so that gives me hope that, you know, cause there's just so much bad stories about marriage in the world, especially Americans. Um, but yeah, I feel like exploring the world together is helping helpful and working and knowing that we have work to do constantly is helpful as well. I have um, some questions around that because I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, maybe rapid fire. Number one, have you ever cheated on any relationship you've ever been in? What is define cheat? Um, anything you wouldn't do in front of your partner that breaks the covenant. Mm-hmm. That's what cheating is. It's, it's... I don't have a memory of ever cheating. Don't do that, Bill Clinton. That doesn't that mean that. Call. That doesn't Girl, mean. First, you don't I mean, remember your baby. Now you don't remember this. I, but like, I literally, I'm trying to think of. By the way, this is why Gemini's are known as the most Probably. hated. Body. When Gemini's answer questions like this, you give everybody high blood pressure. I'm your friend, and even I'm looking at you crazy. Not, oh, not that I recall. You said probably. Well, you said anything you wouldn't do. There's lots of things I wouldn't do in front of my. Partner. No, no. Let, let's not be a Gemini right now. Be, let's, let's 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 bring it back. Cheating is anything that you know that your partner would be upset if they saw you do it, and so you're doing it without them around, and that breaks an agreement that's implied or direct. I know I've never done it with a sexual act, but I've like grinded or danced in a club on somebody. You know, I don't know. And enjoyed myself. Was it with flirtatious intentions? Yes. Oh yeah, that's okay. That's that's yeah. You wouldn't do that in front of your partner, but not my husband, not my current partnership. Would I, you ever stay with your partner if they cheated on you? I used to say quick no to this one, and now I don't know. That's honest. I I I would say probably not because even if I stayed, I would be eternally angry or un, un, not able to accept or trust in the same way again. Um, I would, if my partner came to me and I've been thinking more about like open relationships and like all of the different- That was my next question. Don't, don't jump ahead. Do things. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> would you, but since you already instructions. Then, would you be open to an open relationship? I don't know. 
Girl, the look on your face said no. Your face got real funky. <laughs> I would appreciate that he would come to me and talk about that it was his desire to do that. And I would try to consider it somehow. But I don't think I wouldn't want to share him with somebody else. Yeah. It just feels I don't want to say nasty because I feel like there's judgment. No, it, no, it's unnatural to you because natural subjective. It's, so it's unnatural to you. It, it, it's it's just kind of like this. Um when I think about these acts, you are sharing and giving a part of your spirit and your body and your everything. And to use that in multiple locations, it just doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. And it's so funny. This, the, the strong um, unwavering stance that I've taken on this show is that I think polyamorous people who say that monogamy is unnatural and monogamous people who say polyamorous are natural are both full of shit because natural is subjective and works between you and your partner. So it's very self-aggrandizing to ever, I don't care which side of the coin you are to act like your way is the only way. And so I think if you I recognize my way is not the only way. It's yeah. Just for so me. I'm happy you didn't. Yeah. So it, what's natural for you is okay. And I get really angry when I hear People on either side say the other side's not natural because who the fuck are you like to tell somebody how they, how they get down. But if you were to ever perceive like, God, I could see myself being open to an open relationship. And then your partner said, no, nah, I'm still monogamous over here. Could you see yourself like combating that urge to, to invest in the relationship? If your views ever evolved on monogamy and you were not allowed to, to act on the, that evolution. That's what happens a lot of time when men say they think they're open is that they pretend to be monogamous because society has told them that they have to be. Then they realize, God, I love her too much to cheat. God, so how do I have my cake and eat it too? And then they confess, hey, I think I actually am poly and accidentally entered a monogamous relationship thinking I could change. And then the, uh, the partner has the opportunity to be like, okay, um, I can either re-up with a new agreement or walk away. And some people bite down on that urge there was a show called um good trouble on freeform where a girl was in a monogamous relationship and then told her partner i think i might be poly i want to explore it and he said all right then and then he left and like went to africa like he he, he moved to he he was like best of luck to you and your, your i son. can relate to that <laughs> that's why i brought up that example that sounds like you you'd be like oh you, you want to have many wives okay nice mm-hmm. i'm gonna go back to sierra leone <laughs> Speaking of many wives, I've lived in a community that is polygamous. When I was a Peace Corps volunteer, I was living in the polygamy. They had two or three wives. And it didn't seem it didn't seem to work the majority of the time. Like publicly it worked because it was tradition and it was accepted and it was culture. But when I would talk to wives one-on-one, you know, when I, they knew I wouldn't repeat what they said, they're like, no, I can't stand wife one or you know, too, or he be going over there. Yeah. And HIV is like moving rap. You know, in the early two thousands, it was a lot of HIV. So if you're one man, you're you're infecting, you know, several women, um, and even some children. You know, past the childbirth. So I'm happy about that. Up. I'm happy about that because I, I think polyamory or monogamy done because it's tradition and not because it's how you naturally want to do things is always dangerous. That's why I keep on saying both sides are full of shit when they act like their way is the only way because there's some societies where polyamory and a, one man having many wives is the norm but some of those wives are monog- monogamous people and then there are, are america or places over here where we're saying monogamy 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 some of them people are both polyamorous and they're both lying to each other and so i think and then you have caribbeans and even some african countries that are all of that and they just call it something different second family like- 
Yeah, second family. I'm a second family. I'm There's an apartment over here, the main house, the apartment for the woman that nobody, everybody knows about, but nobody talks about. Like, that's the same. I'd rather it be out in the open and honest than, you know, and I I never am surprised or disrespectful of different arrangements for different people because I know people in probably most of these arrangements and they're living their fullest life in in the best way. The only arrangements that I clap for are the ones that are working. Like and whatever arrangement you got, people. yeah. If it's working, I'm gonna mind my goddamn business. Now, if you're miserable, we can talk. Because now, even you don't like it, so it's time to yeah. keep it right. But if mm-hmm. a re- arrangement is working for all parties, I mind my business. Like whatever it is, I mind my business. Would you ever consider um, doing a, a? How do I say it? Playing with a partner on vacation. I once dated a guy in LA, actually. Who this is right before the pandemic, and he was like, "Hey, you know, I could see myself." on vacation with my girl after we've been stable like maybe you know doing a threesome like away so it's a complete stranger and we're on vacation and it's isolated and for a couple of years I thought that was a little hot and now I'm just like well, you the world is small I find people in different countries that I've met I met you in Kenya and I'm seeing you in you know Switzerland <laughs> you're, you're, you're mad that Swiss Bay might actually be somebody connected to your circle I mean, well, that that was kind of the explanation you used. Like, oh, you'll never see this person again. It's far away. No, nothing is far away. Everything is one plane ride or a couple plane ride connections away, or um, some Wi-Fi Google searching away. But the yes, exactly. But the question: Would I do it? I don't know. Uh, it would have to be a lot of discussion. I won't close the door fully on anything without discussion. But the discussion may end in no. I will not do that. <laughs> okay, you're that? being a quintessential black woman right now. Let me discuss <laughs> it before I tell you no. Yeah, we should have discussed it. You don't know, talk about everything. I, no. That doesn't mean I will say no, but yeah, I just I feel like, and that's also about like sexual freedom, and I yeah. didn't learn that growing up. You know, I've yeah. I'm still a little bit. I will admit that about myself. I'm open to learning, um, and especially with my partner. Um, but to think about extending that to another person, I don't know. It's taken me this long to build this trust with my partner. So I feel like I got to take it slow. Yeah. There's so many things that I I said I wouldn't do that I've done. And sometimes I'm happy I did it. Sometimes I was like, nah, I was right the first time. This is whack. And so when I look at your face, that's how I felt. The last Mm -hmm. time I went to a play party, um, I remember it was just limbs everywhere. And I was like, yeah, I got to go. Does it I smell? Got... No, I actually, people have better it. hygiene at play parties. Like, oh, I've just been curious. Like, all people that at play is. parties and, and strippers have better hygiene than, than the average person, actually. Because you have to. When you when you don't know who's going to have their face down there, you actually have to be extra fresh and clean at all times. Mm. So the hygiene is actually better in the kink community than it is in the vanilla community. Mm. Much okay, better, vanilla. actually. Oh, oh yeah, so vanilla is anybody who does like regular conventional, you know, mm-hmm. society accepted things in the kink communities that people who live on the fringe. Mm-hmm. And I dibbled and dabbled in the kink community for about 10 years. I know that sounds like a lot, lot of dibbling and dabbling. And I was like, yo, y'all wash everything a lot better. Like men in the kink community have better hygiene than cis mm-hmm. Like because they have to, right? But one of the things I realized was I was experimenting because I wanted to make sure that there was no part of me that was not being honored. And I explored and found out that I was vanilla. I mean, I'm always open to learning and that because I don't want things to go stale, you know? Yeah. So I don't, you, we don't want to do the same thing. So we often talk about, okay, what can we do? How can we spice this up? What can we, you have know? you ever taken shrooms together? No, I've never really done hard. I'm such a. No, shrooms are not hard drugs, love. Don't, don't say oh, that. Is it? 
Oh, um, I don't even know when the heart, like, I don't know. I'm so square. The heart joy is like crack. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, heroin. <laughs> I don't even know the spectrum. Well, the, the spectrum that I, that I subscribe to is that marijuana, shroom, psychedelics, like marijuana is soft. I know marijuana is not hard. It's just politically. Well, shrooms have the exact same effect as just marijuana on marijuana, right? Like if, if, if a, a joint smoked itself, that shrooms. And so all that stuff that you use, especially for a spiritual practice, that's not hard. It gets hard when you're doing like crack cocaine and heroin and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, or even if you're doing opioids. So I'm scared of, uh, of drugs. I'm scared of opioids. They tried to give me that after the C-section. And I was just like, I was thinking about the people on methadone mild. The first, I only had one C-section. The second one was vaginal. No, which, what opioid would they try to give you? Oxy. Oh, wasn't that supposed to make you feel like everything's okay? I don't know. I was scared because I, you know, we have the methadone mile, we call it in Boston and people walk around like zombies and they get hooked. And I feel like as a Gemini, it will be easy for me to get hooked on something. No, listen to your introduced introduced to it once. And so I said, I just take Tylenol, you know, I'm gonna tough it out, you know. (laughs) Okay. Not to be the criticism (laughs) talking about Zodiac signs and, and this audience is very trained in knowing that I, we talk about the Zodiac during these interviews. Um, I'm the quintessential tourist where the only things that I really get addicted to are luxury, um, sex, and food. Like I have, I have so much alcohol in my house from parties. I have copious amounts of types of legal soft drugs, guys. They're all legal in the state of California in my home. And when people leave and come back, everything is still the same. The, the jar is where you left it. You know what I mean? Like I'm surrounded by those things all the time and feel no thought about consuming them in a, a large amount. But when it comes to lunch, like first class seats or some good sex or a shopping trip, then my addictive personality or, or a good meal, that's when my addictive personality comes I mean, out. I love that too. And I, not for nothing, I, I mean, alcohol, I think is my only, you know, thing in my house. And I, I don't have the same interest in drinking that I did in my twenties. I drink for social and it's mostly wine mm. now, but even wine makes me sleepy. So I have to limit I went you to know. wine country for my birthday and I was not like we I was so tired. Sleepy. We went to the house in, in wine country and everybody was over 35. We I think me, my friend Richard, and, and his wife Monique, us being up at eleven thirty, we were the last ones up. Everybody was knocked out by 10 o'clock. I think that's part of why you're supposed to spit it out, honestly. Drunkenness and sleepiness. Because wine is just to have that powerful. But yeah, I think I I I haven't tried any of these things. Would I? I don't know. I, yeah, I've not even. You, I yeah. would highly recommend. I, I can bring you something that's coming in Boston. I would highly recommend you guys get a gallon. I'm not allowed for my job. No, you're not allowed. This is public. <laughs> I know you're not allowed right now because you're breastfeeding, but a galaxy yeah, light in some too. shrooms is, is, is a form of couples therapy. You, no, seriously, because the, the shrooms make you feel like you're ethereal and your body is light this is my listening trying to understand face i know you're really? interpreting my face so like i'm okay. telling you okay. a galaxy light and some shroom <laughs> could be a night and it's so funny because i have a couple of friends who've confessed to me that they've done the same thing i thought i, I thought that, that was my thing a lot of folks have realized that just lying on the floor and making like a picnic in the living room and turning on some galaxy lights so it feels like you're outside watching the stars and then smoking a J or popping a low dose of shrooms and just feeling your body and having great conversation with the person that you love. It's actually, very, it's not that, that hardcore actually, it's actually kind of sweet and compassionate and the sex is also very good. So if you ever on the low, we don't have to say it on camera, want me to bring you a supply of legal shrooms. Mm. 
Hmm. Let me know. I don't know if they're gonna look at you funny um, when you go back to Africa. With like, what? What are these chocolates? With the little oh, shrooms are in chocolate. No, you can. The kind that I would give you because you're you're extra vanilla would probably be the shroom chocolates because those don't extra what vanilla. I'll take it. But would you be open to if your partner ever? And the reason why I'm asking these questions is because I think a lot of times people desexualize mothers. And so I intentionally wanted to have a conversation about motherhood, daughterhood, all that stuff. And let's talk about fucking, right? Because mothers be fucking y'all. How do y'all think y'all got here? And I think a lot of folks see it. They be like, why are you wearing that? You're a mother. And I was like, I don't believe in that. I don't feel like my dress code changed because I became a mother. Um, I, you know, I still want to live a life. I want to live a whole life. I want, I'm trying to figure out right now before we leave the States, like how we can slide in some nights out and you know without the kids and get cute and pretend we you know remember we have a life and we're full people whole people outside of our children just for a few hours if, if nothing else well you guys uh, all have the same birthday yeah you and Kwame have the same birthday Ooh, so, so as a birthday a- gift I will be in town at the end of Are June okay. I'll be in town at the end of June I will watch the kids for a night for you guys it's birthday okay. gift I'm being serious. You know what I mean? I'll take it. I'll take it. You already know that me and... Exi- um, <laughs> I love that baby. Thaddeus. Me and Thaddeus. Auntie Blue. <laughs> we like playing games on the phone. I am such a child. I was like, you. I was talking about you yesterday. I was like, do you remember Auntie Blue? He's like, yeah, I think so. I was like, the one that every time you ran around said you were in your feelings. He's like, oh, yes. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> Oh, running like oh, he's 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 processing his feelings through movement. But it's true though. So for the audience to give you guys context, Natalie's son, I very quickly realized that whenever he had a strong emotion, he would hit the ground running. He would just start running because he had to to process how he was feeling. And so I gave him a a really sincere compliment, and his face lit up. And then he got so overwhelmed by emotion, he just started running. Instead of saying thank you, he's like, adorable. What? And then he he's so adorable. He started running. And so I was like, oh no, this is how he he processes his feelings. Like a lot of athletes will tell you, like, when they were going through stuff with their families and they were and they were younger, being at the court, they, that's how they got their feelings out. So it's not a- actually acknowledged enough, I think, especially in young black men, that sometimes you have to be physical when you're overwhelmed by your feelings. And I love that your son got to hear me constantly affirming that because. He might have judged, like, I don't know why I'm running, but I feel like I need to run now. I don't think he's judging himself at all. He's I don't either, because he was he, he ate he it does up. not care about what anybody else is talking about. He, I try to keep keep him active. He's really, really like soccer or football everywhere else in the world except America. Yeah. Um, so keep him running. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, though. That's a good observation. I'm, I'm and it's healthy. Once you have the context for it, then you can be like, oh, he's running because he's overrun by emotion right now. As opposed to back in the day, oh, he's just a bad child. He can't sit still. God, they got so much wrong back in the day. They got so much wrong. Now, and secretly in my head, I'm thinking about, well, maybe if he's always running, that he can overcome this kind of generational obesity of my family and by staying active. I think about that all the time, trying not to, you know, mom, my mom, him, and mm-hmm. let him eat what he needs to but also stop eating you know on his own that's what they say is healthiest um pause yeah. for a quick second i'm gonna hit pause because i think I, I realized that i wasn't charging and i want to just pop up let me see put in your plug oh wait a minute cancel i think i accidentally hit uh yeah my plug just came out Play, or did you stop oh, you all right go. we're back uh my laptop is charging i didn't want to lose that point it's so interesting how you mentioned how hopefully him being active means that he can combat the obesity that kind of runs generational 
generational obesity because a part of me wondered um there was some show about how a mother was being problematic in the way that she was dealing with her daughter and then you came to find out later because she was fat herself and she was internalizing all the pain she felt from being fat and was unintentionally shaming her daughter and so part of me wonders if you are a former fat kid now having a child how would you feel if your baby did show up obese? Like, what if Xavier just ends up being big boned? Like, how would you, would you be triggered by that? Because I think even me. Probably. Yeah. Would you feel like it was Unfortunately, a- I wouldn't, I would, I, you know, I, I don't even know what I do. I'm so working hard trying to prevent it, making sure to normalize natural, healthy food and have them crave that to the sugar and process. And, you know, I always think about my parents, they were doing the best they could. They mm-hmm. are very Caribbean, Central American, Latin American. I, the food that we ate contradicted the goals that we have for our body mm-hmm. on a daily basis. And so for me, it's all about food and, and exposing them to good food and um, trying to keep them active, making sure a sport is a mandatory activity. You can pick which sport it is. But, you know, I want you to be out there having fun and moving and make movement and a normalized activity in your life so that you do it. Um, you know, my activity was music, violin, piano, I was doing these things, but I wasn't moving. And I think if I was, it might have been different. Um, yeah, but I don't know what I would do if he and, it, you know, I would still love him very much. There's this book I read, um, The Body is Not an Apology. Yeah, that book's been mentioned to me so many times recently. I wept because I saw myself yeah. and because I didn't recognize how much trauma, all the diets and the comments and the, I didn't recognize that I wasn't wearing, I wasn't wearing color. There was a long, most of my, for most of my teenage life into my adulthood, until I met my husband, really, I was wearing dark colors, a lot of black because my mother would tell me how that makes me look slim. Mm -hmm. or that you know protects your figure or whatever I would never wear horizontal stripes god forbid um and my husband my boyfriend at the time was like why don't you ever wear because you know he's West African uh he had these lime green pants I used to hide because I was like please don't wear those out (laughs) oh that's why you don't like me on okay that's coming back okay (laughs) and so he so he every color outfit I had when I started wearing color, he bought for me. I would oh. never buy it for myself. And he would tell me that I'm, oh, we have a visitor. And they would tell him. A little Thaddeus. shadow in the back. Yeah, Thaddeus from say hi to Auntie Blue. Hi, Thaddeus. <laughs> Look at you. This is the first time we've had a baby on, on the pod. <laughs> He's recovering from his allergies. This is a, this oh, I, feel, I feel your pain, babe. I feel your um, pain. But yeah, he, he said I was beautiful in these, you know, these bright colors and nobody had ever done that for me before. Cause I never wore them to allow them the opportunity to do. And, you know, so it definitely, what you're, what the experience you go through with your parents definitely impacts what you do with your kids. But I'm trying to make sure my kids don't feel the shame. Yeah. I don't think my mother was trying to make me feel shame, but now I connect what happened to what made me feel shame. And I'm trying to avoid doing that. That's dope. I, I, th- I think it's so interesting too, because people don't talk about this. You don't just get fat from food or activity. Sometimes it's hormonal, right? Like for me, I gained 60 pounds after my aunt died because of the stress hormone cortisol. My cortisol levels were so high that I was gaining weight from trauma, not from food. And so 
I'm like, if I had a daughter who had an anxiety disorder, because that runs in my family, we, we were very anxious people. If my daughter had an anxiety disorder and was holding on to weight from that and the food and whatever wasn't, wasn't enough, or what if she had PCOS, what do you do when you can't gently lifestyle change your child and you just have to deal with their body being a reflection of the body that you used to judge yourself, right? And I would like to hope and think that would make them feel beautiful. Because I, I, I think I'm at a place yeah, where love I love on that. them. Yeah, mm-hmm. just love on them. Because my mom, I will say this, the one thing that she, not the one thing, but one of the things she got right that she, I don't even think she realized she was doing. When I had that eating disorder and fluctuate a hundred pound different per year. Like if you look at me in high school, I was fluctuating. There was a hundred pound difference every six months. So that's a drastic change in either direction, right? And when I was thinner and if I was happy, she'd be like, oh, honey, you look so sexy. And if I lost any weight, she'd be like, oh, you look sexy. Because my mother thinks sexy is a, is a compliment. I don't know what that's about. And then if I gained a little weight, she'd be like, oh, your hair looks nice. Like she would just find different places to compliment me. She'd be like, why don't you wear more color? Like this color looks so good. You look good in hot pink. You look good in chartreuse. And so I think because my mom never once fat shamed me when I was like 38 and she once said, oh, you're getting big. I was like, bitch, I've been t- talking about on all these platforms that you're the one person who's never- what the hell? But I realized at that point she was in her 70s and I think she was starting to lose the ability. There's no nuance in the 70s. There's no political correctness. There's just get to the point. Don't worry about how they feel about it. This lady never said anything fat phobic to me. And so when I was damn near 40, she's like, oh, you look a little big. Are you, have you been drinking water? I was like, (laughs) if only water was the solution to everything. And I was like on Hollywood Unlocked or some some big platform talking about how she's never done this to me. And I was like, hey, I had the Pikachu face like, bitch, you just just made me a liar. But you know what's so interesting? She has so much grace that I'm not going to hold that against her. And it just goes to show your parents are human. They are. I'd like to think people are always doing the best. There's a Brene Brown quote. People are always doing the best they can. Or just assume that, you know, that's how I try to go into it. And definitely my parents, I know we're doing. Because as a parent, I don't know everything. There was one day Thaddeus was at the table. He asked me a question. I said, I do not know. He got angry at me. He's like, mommy, what do you mean you don't know? You know everything. I said, no, I don't. No, don't get it (laughs) twisted. (laughs) I learn every day just like you. And he, I had like busted a bubble he just assumed that I and I remember thinking my parents knew everything until one Mm -hmm. day I woke up and realized they didn't and now this whole thing we talked about earlier about generation and changing in our age our aging parents it's like you become the parent as a child yeah and they ask you things that you know they know how to do but they ask you because it would just be easier Mm -hmm. if you did it for them or they forgot how to do it or and it just blows my mind um yeah but it's the circle of life the circle of life is very humbling and that's probably the name of this episode because i feel like we've been talking about the circle of life the entire time and it's i think number one it's revolutionary for parents to tell their kids that they don't know things and that they're sorry important yeah a lot of parents don't know how to apologize to their kids and i feel like you're one of those parents who knows how to do that which i think is so amazing to watch Mm -hmm. it makes me so proud of you watching you mother in that way because having grown up with you and seeing you while you were in those traumas and then seeing how differently you're parenting your kids, like sitting back, I'm like, oh shit, look at evolution doing its thing. Like, that's amazing. It's not automatic. I read a lot. I follow a lot of positive parenting blogs and Instagram. And, you know, I don't know everything. I ask questions, but I also reflect on what I feel, what I felt, what I know to be true. 
Yeah. And what makes me feel good? Because kids are ultimately human. They're baby, they're baby adults. They're, like, they're, they're, they're grown. Yeah. I probably talk to my children like they're too much, like too adult. Like trying to filter out the adult, adult stuff. But I don't baby. I never baby talked to Thaddeus. Um, and I think that I like to think that's why his vocabulary is so great. I would use big words. He's like, what? That I don't baby talk to him either. We were having a full discussion. While we oh were yes, you were. Yes, you were. And I think that makes a difference. It helps you because you your kids will rise to the expectations you set for them. Yeah. And my expectations for my children are limitless. Like they can do whatever they put their mind to. And so I have to nurture that as their parent. Nurturing is such an interesting word to use because, uh, you know, nurturement a lot. It meant being bossy um, and pretending to know everything. And then when you would get something wrong, instead of saying to your kid, I'm sorry, you say, you hungry? That's how mothers used to, we used to apologize to you back in the day. They'd be like, you hungry? Like, lady, you just cussed me out. And I don't even think you got it right. You just gonna wait a couple of hours and offer me food? I'm gonna eat it because I'm hungry. Like, mm-hmm. so you hungry? I've seen some of those memes. How black parents apologize? You hungry? <laughs> you know? Okay, so since we're talking about the, the circle of life, I wanted to end um, on the note. Well, there's two notes I want to end on. First of all, I had a moment yesterday while I was pulling out from Boston because I was thinking about this episode and I was thinking about how you know you're in this space of you're moved back to America specifically to have a baby. And the minute that you are ready, you're moving right back to Africa to do all this international amazing work that you're doing and how much strength it takes to go to a different continent. Like I live across the country. You're going to a different continent with aging parents. And I was like, well, if Natalie can go to Africa with aging parents, I can't, don't have to feel guilty about flying back to LA. But then I started thinking, and I'm using but intentionally, because this is the, this immediately negated that thought. I was like, when my aunt passed away, I didn't know it was going to be the last time I saw her, right? So like, what if I don't know how much time I have with my mom? And I said, God, just give me 10 more years. Just give me a decade to like show her that all the stuff that she invested in me. And I started bargaining with God as we were about to take off. Like, just give me 10 more years with her. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, I actually have, I can make this wish, but I have no control. And Natalie, I just started sobbing in my seat. Like, I don't yeah, ever, I, don't I just started cry. Yeah, like I just thought, like, just give me 10 more years. And you know what's wild? You've already given her that, though. Like, what if she already sees that in you? And you, we put so much expectation on I ourselves. understand. But let me, let me, let me land this plane, though, ironically. So I said, give me 10 more years. And as I'm thinking that and feeling so scared, like scared, you know, how I always told you my aunt's angel number is 22. The plane was moving to take off and it suddenly stopped in front of a sign that said 22. And then whenever I see that sign, it's always my aunt with me saying everything's going to be okay. Mm. And, and then I started being like, okay, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. It's a sign from God that whatever time I have is the time that I need, right? And so I wanted to ask you, how do you reconcile when you know you're in Boston, you're with your family, you love them, but you recognize that elderly parents have high expectations and low tolerance, and they can be exhausting as much as a newborn, and so you're so excited about going back to the beautiful life you've created elsewhere. How do you embrace that life you've created without having guilt about leaving them behind and never knowing what, what goodbyes can be the last one? I mean, first of all, I do have guilt. I experience guilt. I experience the sobbing. Um, it oh, you sometimes brings me anxiety. Oh my goodness, yes. I was um, judging myself yesterday. Like, girl, why are you No, crying? don't what? judge yourself. Death is just so... There's just so much unknown. You can't know how many years you have left. I think one of the things I find peace in is my parents actually telling me that it's not my job 
to take care of them and worry about. Even though I will keep trying and doing all that I can to take care of them, they have released me and said, you know, we brought you into this world. You've done great by being who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, just don't don't limit yourself worried about us, right? And so they've released me to do that. Another thing I have a great privilege and, you know, blessing. I don't know how many things, miracle really, when I think about all of my friends that have experienced loss or have grown up, you know, without a parent, my parents have each other. When one of my parents die, and I say when, because everybody's going to die someday, even though every time I think about it, I get teary eyed and emotional. I don't know how, if I'm going to feel the same about leaving, you know, um, tried try to think about is there a way I can bring my parent parents or parent with me if you know one of them passes away um I don't know there's like but one of the, the there's there is guilt and there is every moment I have with them I feel like in my now in these years I try to be intentional and be present and yeah. make it a good moment I let I say I love you every time I get off the phone I try to create experiences whenever we're together we do photos almost every year I come home. So we have a lot of memories. Um, and I recognize that we have already lived a great life together. Mm-hmm. I grew up almost half of my life in my household with my parents. Um, and so, you know, I think it's okay. It's still, I'm still very guilty. I feel very guilty. And I still very much want to have my life and career abroad. And yeah. I. I, it, it, you know, if guilt takes over at some point, I might very well come back, you know, and, um, or, and maybe come back for a period and until they're both gone and then leave again, or I, I don't know what the future is, but right now this is where I'm at and I'm, tr- I'm trying to be at peace with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to enjoy the moments that I do have with them. Yeah. That, 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 that resonates with me. Cause I, yeah. I feel like when I was younger and more, and more naive about death, I would go home to Boston and then hide in my room to sleep and then go out and, and see some friends and like say hi, say hi mommy and kiss her real quick on the way out. And now when I come to Boston, you know, because she has diabetes and um, hypertension, it makes your skin dry. So what I start doing is the minute I got off the plane, I wash my hands, I get a big pail of hot water and a compress and I like bathe her feet and like literally lotion her feet. So the minute I come That's home- an act of love. Yeah. And I, like, literally I was exhausted and I made a beeline to her room to bathe my mother's feet and lotion her feet and give her a massage because she can't reach down there anymore. And I was like, oh, wait, and I saw this before, like in certain African traditions, bathing someone's feet is such an, an act of love. And I didn't even. Such an act of love. And every time I do it, Respect. I'm like, it is because it's like. It's you biblical. So much. I remember the woman who washed Jesus's feet with her hair, I think, or something. Yeah. The- Something as simple as bathing my mother's feet well, the first day and the last day of me being in town. I did it before I left. I bathed her feet and made sure that she was good and put on her nice fuzzy socks that I got on Amazon for her. And she's like, oh, I feel so good. And then when I walked away, she was like, I just want you to know this is the best Mother's year, Mother's Day I've ever had. I was like, mommy, Mother's Day was four days ago. She was like, all five days you've been here is the best Mother's Day I've ever had. She's like, I don't know what's going to happen next year, but this is the best Mother's Day I've ever had. And that's I think beautiful. that's why I got emotional because I was like, Younger me didn't think about giving her the best Mother's Day. She was just my naggy mother in my face, like not understanding me. So I think if anybody hearing this episode um, is blessed to still have their parents, 
um, and your parents have not hit their 70s yet because, honey, them seven, we talk about the terrible tools. Let's do the, the circle of life theme. Being two years old and being in your 70s, those are the two phases that we need to be talking about, okay? Because the 70s is like the terrible tools of, the, of, of aging, and it really humbles you if your parents are fortunate enough to make it to that age range. Um, and I do cherish moments more now. I live more in the present. Remember what we were talking about in class? That, that trauma makes you a time traveler, right? Because when you're triggered, you go back to the past to where you were previously hurt. And when you're anxious, you're going to the future, assuming you're going to be hurt again. And I have been not a time traveler at all this entire year. I've been living very much in the day. Um, and I love that for me. And with you right now being displaced and being in a whole different country, you're kind of in that space too of having to live for the day because nothing is your stable reality. I mean, like the, the Airbnb you have is kind of beautiful though. Like, you, you did a great job, friend. Yes, give thanks. It gives me anxiety to like be moving around all the time, honestly. It's a like it's a blessing and I love the world. And it did it it hasn't played out the way that I had imagined it had. There's been a lot of, you know, stops and starts. Um yeah but I'm still hopeful. And one thing I wanted to add to the parents piece is recognizing my parents have created a life without me. Mm-hmm. That is very full or, you know, their version of full, it might not be my version of full, but it's, it's full. They've gotten used to living and operating without me. Yeah. And when I think, feel guilty and think about how, what I could be doing or whatever, it's kind of me living in the past or that's, that's the time traveling piece. Like what? what could I, or should I be doing, you know, that I'm not doing, I think you're doing what you're supposed to be as long as you're present where you're at and recognizing that they are full adults and they are living their life, whether it is with you or without you. Um, And they will remember those moments. She will remember, you know, God forbid she is by herself and in the bed. She'll remember you washing her feet. Yeah. I tend to not count him in, but my stepdad, He's a sweet man. He's there. She's she's not alone, technically. All right. We talked a lot about motherhood, being mothers, having mothers, not being mothers, but still having mothers, not having mothers. Um, do you have any last advice? This is the last question before we wrap up. For anybody who's in their mid to late 30s or even their 40s, right? Because those are the two spaces that we were talking about earlier, who still want to do this, who still want to start a family, biological or otherwise, what advice would you give to some people who are doing the life and partnership and baby and th- family thing later, be, like past 35? Any thoughts, insights, advice that you would give to them that you might have wished somebody had given to you when you were embarking on this journey? Um, it can be done. Believe in yourself, I think, and do your self work and your manifestation or whatever it is, or your prayer, or whatever it is to, to get right and see how you want things to play out with intention so that when people come to tell you you can't or put things in your way or obstacles or create obstacles or that you are already set in your understanding of what you're capable of so you can see it through. Um, the, the medical and the, the, that part of it, make sure you know you have a choice. I'll bring that back again. It's really important to know you don't have to do what your doctor tells you it's not it's not always great advice you should probably this is my intentional should do what your doctor have discernment but you don't always have to and so building your team like having a good doula a doula can be a great advocate they've been through the birthing experience before they know what's normal what's not normal you know have a good team that can advocate you or tell you what you can't my doula told me 
you don't have to induce just because your doctor tells you to induce. My first pregnancy, I induced because the doctor said it. And my mother always taught me, you know, do what the doctor says. And my doula said, I was like, I don't have to. That was, that was news. To, I mean, I should have shared. That's the bad use of should known that, but I didn't. Okay, I yeah. didn't. And so with that, that's how I was able to have a vaginal birth after C-section. And for those who don't know what that is, Google it. It is, it's not easy. It's not always successful, but if you can achieve it, if that's what you want, it's a big deal. And it's an even huger deal after 40 and it's possible. And part of it is mindset and believing in yourself and, and putting that strong foundation in so that you can go out, go in with, with knowing that you can accomplish what you want. It's, it's possible to do all of it. Um, yeah, I'm still figuring it out. The, the, my next thing about figuring it out is going back to work with two children mm-hmm. instead of one. I haven't done that yet, so I'm not going to speak. Like well, I know if, about if, it, we, if we ever I find a podcast studio in Boston, <laughs> we could do a follow-up because, child, does Boston not have any podcast studios? It Look, does. Nobody responded to me. Not a single person that I hit. How Boston. many did you hit up? Like three or four. Oh. Yeah, so I don't well, know. The I'm original one I gave you, I can have my friend put in a call. Like, maybe you need to know somebody. Maybe yeah, you like a layup type thing. Put in a call. Because I, w- I would love to have, when I visit Boston and see family, an excuse to dip out and do the stuff yeah. that I love as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this conversation has been great. I think a lot of people learned a lot Thank of things. Uh, a song that I've been listening to lately a lot, because I love her voice and I like the song, um, is A Special Occasion by Emily King. Um, because we're taught, yeah, we're taught all the time. I played at the beginning of class while people, you guys are waiting for me to, uh, to to cam up. But the song goes, life is a special occasion. Because back in the day, she's Puerto Rican. Back in the day, Latin American, Caribbeans, immigrants, actually African-Americans, everybody. We've always been taught, save this for a special occasion. Save that bottle for a special occasion. And the whole song is, life is a special occasion. The fact That'd that you woke up this morning is a special occasion. And mm-hmm. so... I think I'm in that era where everything feels like a special occasion for me right now. It really does. Live your life in full living color. Living for sure. Color. We just, I just aged us again. Now, this has been great. Let everybody know where they can find you at now that they've been listening yeah. to you for the past couple hours. I don't know if I want to be found. You don't have to. Uh, my friend uh, Mel, she was like, they can find me on your page. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They can find me on this podcast. Um, LinkedIn. Maybe LinkedIn. LinkedIn is safe. I, now I remember LinkedIn. Okay, if you guys can find now. <laughs> if you LinkedIn. can find me, you can Google. You're the second guest who's like, look, I came on here to talk to you and your friends, um, but I'm going to go back to my life now. I appreciate you for making time to do this, love, because you Thank actually you have actually me. me. You've known me longer than any friend I have that's still alive. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm so honored to be invited. I'm just, I love what you do and your innovation and your mind and your thoughtfulness. And so I'm, it's such a pleasure to be with you. And thank you for always speaking life into me because you've seen the 17 or so iterations of me. Um, and so I just appreciate- I've liked most of them a lot. Child, there was a couple of them when I was like, I'm hanging out with some assholes. This is a bad influence. Like, we don't like to think that we can be influenced by who's around us. But I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is your tribe actually does dictate your wavelength. Your constant has always been your brilliance and your swift, you know, way with language and writing and in in words. And so that I've always loved that. Um, I love many things about you, but I love you like, that. that's very Gemini of you friend you like you like the words and the stimulation it's so funny uh, my mother was um had my room redone as a surprise for me I surprised her for Mother's Day really? she surprised me by having like a bunch of new carpet and my room my childhood room decluttered and she oh, found really? the journal from 1998 
And I opened the journal. It was only two pages that I wrote in it before I had lost it. And my mother just found it like last week. And this journal from 1998, I talked exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. Constant. True. I was like, I saw, I, I was reading it like. You were always, it's always been your authentic self. Yeah. So for people who think that I'm, I'm fraudulent or putting something on, apparently I was talking like this in the nineties too, which I can tell this is probably why I had a lot of people who couldn't stand me. Cause in the nineties, you couldn't talk like this without getting in trouble. So I'm happy society has grown. You have always been you. So thank you for being an authentic person. Cue the golden girls. Thank you for being a friend. Guys, um, if you want to find Lana, you can find her on LinkedIn or uh, on this, on this podcast. <laughs> if you want to find me, or not at me all. At, right. At Centric. For those of you, by the way, there's a fraudster out there who has been pretending to be me and soliciting um, my clients in, in my D- in their DMs asking for money. I need you to know if anybody named Blue Centric, look at the spelling because they always spell it wrong. Slide into your DM and says, hey, can I do a reading for you for a donation? I do not do readings for donations, guys. That is not me. I don't have to do readings for donations. That's not how I move. Um, please make sure that you know that there's a fraud. And the only way that you can book a reading with me is through bluecentricshop.com backslash readings. That is the only way, okay? I am not nickeling diamond, y'all. And I really kind of hate that somebody's trying to impersonate me. But as one of my homegirls told me the other night, she's like, look, it means you made it. If somebody wants to be you, it means you made it. So I guess it is what it is. Um, Until next time, please remember to be gentle with yourselves because we're all just human beings doing human shit. Bye. Say bye, Natalie. Bye. This is. Electric acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.